You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. I seek refuge with Allah from Satan the accursed, in the name of Allah the gracious, the merciful. Good morning. Welcome to the Backpage Show of the Voice of Islam uh, with Imam Farid Ahmed, uh, Imam Tukir Ahmed, and myself, Farid Ahmed. The time is uh, three minutes past seven. It's Friday, the 7th of October, 2022. As always, we have a very packed show this morning on the breakfast show. It's uh, an interactive broadcast. It means that our listeners have the opportunity to join in any of the discussions taking place during the course of the program. All you need to do is pick up the phone, dial 0208-687-7878, and share your thoughts uh, with us. Alternatively, you can use a more modern method of tweeting. Uh, tweeting and uh, the Twitter handle is uh, Voice of Islam UK. Uh, in a few minutes' time, we'll begin with the rundown of the weather uh, from Imam uh, Farid Ahmed. And uh, we'll go on to uh, examine some of the news stories that are doing the rounds these days, uh, not spending much time on each, but trying to rattle through as many of them as possible, as we always do during that first half hour. Uh, and as I said, if you want to have your say on any of the things that we may be covering, uh, the... Uh, way to do that is uh, to ring in uh, 0208-687-7878 or uh, tweeting us at Voice of Islam UK. Now, those who are familiar with the show will know that uh, we normally pick two topics that uh, we focus our attention on doing much of the program. Uh, and uh, today, the first is one that deals with the growing concerns about our mental health brought about by social media and the need for these platforms uh, to take responsibility. Uh, psychology experts urge social media giants to increase transparency around algorithms to protect users' mental health. A bit of a mouthful, but that's the title of our first topic. Uh, and just to uh, go through that again, so in case you missed it, psychology experts urge social media giants to increase transparency around algorithms to protect users' mental health. And uh, we'll be um, uh, covering this uh, particular topic uh, that we picked up on one of the websites with the help of uh, listening to uh, Dr. Lloyd Sellerer, uh, who we spoke uh, to earlier, uh, so it's going to be a clip of that particular exchange that we had with him. Uh, Dr. Sedra is an adjunct professor at the uh, University of Columbia Mailman School of Public Health, and we shall also be sharing the thoughts of Professor Ana Sarano uh, Talaria, who hails from uh, the continent in, in Spain and is the associate professor at the University of Castilla, La Mancha, uh, and uh, uh, that's in Spain. And we would welcome calls from our listeners, of course. So do make sure you're tuned in between 7.30 to 8.30. So it's a longer session, longer segment that we've given to that particular topic. 7.30 to 8.30 is when we will be covering that particular item. And as always, if you want to share your thoughts, please do ring in 0208-687-7878 is the number. Moving on, uh, the second main topic uh, we have is, uh, well, uh, not too uh, different in terms of the area that it's covering. It is linked to mental health. And the increasing incidence of dementia being experienced in the elderly, apparently one of the signs of developing dementia is if you start having um, nightmares in the middle in middle age, uh, so I suppose middle age is what forty, fifty, 
that kind of uh, age, if you start uh, having nightmares during that uh, period of your life, then uh, apparently, according to this particular study, there is an increased risk of uh, that uh, being developed into dementia and later age. So the second, uh, or the title of the second of our main topic, is Nightmares in Middle Age Linked to Dementia Risk. So uh, we'll be addressing that from age 30 uh, onwards. It's going to be the last half hour of the show. So if you are interested in that particular topic, make sure you tune in at that particular time at 8.30 to 9. So lots to do, uh, lots to cover. And as always, we shall have a full review of the Islamic angle to all we discuss from uh, a couple of our imams, Imam Farid Ahmed and Imam uh, Tokir Ahmed. So... That's what we have in store for our listeners. Uh, stay tuned in. And uh, here to uh, bring us up to date with the weather is Imam Farid Ahmed. Over to you, sir. Assalamu alaikum. So today, a band, of heavy ra- a band of heavy rain will move across south across England and Wales, but the southeast will be mostly dry and bright in the morning. Northern Ireland and Scotland will see sunshine and showers. Tonight, Eastern and southern areas will become mostly clear and dry, patchy cloud, and a few showers will continue to push into northwestern and far northern parts of UK. Oh, Zakala, thank you very much for that. So decidedly uh, autumny weather there, yes. Okay, now moving on to other news that uh, we've picked up uh, that's circulating in the uh, in the wider media. Well, um, there's this item for those. Uh, who are burger enthusiasts. Um, McDonald's uh, never lost. That's the heading of this particular item that uh, caught my eye. Uh, some, of us, some of us uh, would have been very alarmed with Facebook posts and uh, posts on other platforms uh, with the news that has resurfaced, claiming that uh, British uh, chef Jamie Oliver won a legal battle against McDonald's challenging its use of ammonium hydroxide to treat meat, also referred to as pink slime. And the, this post suggests that in a legal battle, Oliver uh, pro- proved that the food chain was selling food that we were consuming that in fact was not fit for human consumption. But uh, you'll be pleased to know that the reality is that Jamie Oliver has never sued McDonald's and the chain has ceased to use the offensive ammonium uh, hydroxide uh, over a decade ago. Uh, He and uh, other critics, it's true, had referred to this treated uh, meat as pink slime. And in one of his uh, shows, Food Revolution, uh, Oliver explained that the process involved grinding uh, parts of meat normally inedible to humans and then washing it in ammonium hydroxide to kill bacteria that can cause diseases such as salmonella, and then serving it to the public was something that was done. But as mentioned, um, uh, this is uh, no longer a practice that has been ado- is, is being adopted by uh, food chains any longer, certainly not uh, McDonald's. And McDonald's had issued a clarification when this story first emerged. Uh, so this was back, uh, this is oh, 10 years ago, so it's resurfaced, as I said. But 10 years ago, it said that we made a decision uh, to dis- discontinue the use of ammonia-treated beef in our hamburgers. This product has been out of supply chain 
uh, out of our supply chain since August of last year. This decision was a result of our efforts to align our global standards for how we source beef around the world. So uh, there was no campaign by Jamie Oliver specifically against the, uh, the food chain, uh, no court case, and no initiative to, uh, that was taken up by um, McDonald's in direct consequence of uh, Jamie Oliver's um, actions uh, against McDonald's. Uh, so it is something that um, McDonald's apparently took a decision uh, on its own back. So fake news, uh, if you have uh, come across this, about uh, a court case that um, Jamie Oliver launched, uh, which he won against McDonald's. Not true, okay? Um, now, the other um, story that uh, is uh, quite interesting um, and quite worrying is um, the threat that is hanging over us uh, following the continued hostilities in Ukraine. Uh, Russia has the next large part of Ukraine in a ceremony, um, I think it was um, a week or two weeks ago, uh, which few recognized. And the U.S. Uh, uh, has also, uh, to ratchet up the tension, has also allegedly sabotaged uh, its North uh, 2 Nord two gas pipeline. Uh, in the wake of huge uh, Russian losses, uh, where Ukraine forces are sweeping across the gains made by Russia earlier, the threat of the use of nuclear weapons looms large. But if um, um, President Putin does employ uh, nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield, uh, the consequences uh, could be far-reaching. Uh, former CIA director and retired Army General uh, General Petraeus has said about the likely U.S. response, so there will be a response by the United States if uh, uh, nuclear weapons are used. Uh, he says that we would respond, and this is quite ominous, we would respond by leading a NATO a collective effort that would take out every Russian conventional force that we can see and identify on the battlefield in Ukraine and also in Crimea, Crimea, Crimea and every ship in the Black Sea. Uh, now, if that happens, uh, then isn't that going to be a prelude for World War III? Um, Russia is not going to be um, sitting idly by while American forces or NATO forces attack um, its, uh, uh, its armed forces. And, uh, and there is every likelihood that uh, the response may well uh, be uh, be nuclear. Um, so is this a prelude for World War Three? Something that His Holiness, uh, the head of the Hamdiya Muslim community, has been warning us for the last two decades. Uh, so a lot of prayers needed, a lot of efforts needed. Uh, an early negotiated settlement between Russia and uh, Ukraine is certainly very much uh, in need. Let's hope and pray that that is something that's going to be achieved in the very near future. Um, Imam Parid, have you got any any um, news items that you want to share? Fine, okay, let me carry on then. Um, so, um, well, there's been much in the news about uh, what is happening in the Conservative Party. Um, there is a lot of unrest. Um, 
and this particular item which uh, reads U-turn and stormy political weather is very much uh, descriptive of um, the state that our ruling party is in at the moment. It may have only been a couple of weeks ago that we had the infamous mini-budget uh, and uh, what transpired uh, in the Conservative Party conference. Uh, it did not yield much confidence in uh, the government. The key issue troubling uh, the markets and the media and the public is the lack of credibility in the government's approach. Uh, we have launched a, a program for growth. Uh, growth seems to be the mantra for the new government. Uh, and this is envisioned to be achieved through tax cuts and support for energy bills. But uh, the initiative fails to explain how it will be funded other than borrowing a bad idea, according to many. Uh, the fact that uh, the government prevented the Office of Budget Responsibility, OBR for short, is an independent body to give its analysis on what uh, the Chancellor had proposed further cemented that skepticism in the government's approach. And matters came to a head during the uh, conference itself when it became clear that Conservative MPs were simply not going to give support to one of the prominent planks in the mini-budget uh, announcement, the abolition of the 45% tax rate. And that would have given an extra £50,000 tax break to, uh, to millionaires. And that was something that was unconscionable for many MPs at a time of uh, financial strife for many. Uh, chairman of the powerful 1922 committee, uh, Sir Ian Brady, made it uh, known to the uh, uh, Prime Minister that she would not get this measure passed in the House of Commons, owing to the uh, um, wave of opposition that existed among not the opposition MPs, but, upon, uh, but among her own MPs. So a U-turn became inevitable and was duly announced on, on Monday. And a similar U-turn in bringing the, forward the, um, the analysis of the OBR uh, to this month uh, was also that was uh, mentioned. Uh, it has been only reluctantly agreed uh, to by the Chancellor and uh, then sh scheduled for late November, but the pressure has been such that it has to be brought forward to this month, and that's, the, that's what I've just mentioned. The whole reason for this is to give the public and the market some confidence in the government approach. Uh, the danger is, and this is quite likely, that the OBR will simply trash the government's approach and won't, won't support its efforts to yield the growth it is anticipating. Uh, there is a long way to go, but um, with the polls consistently giving Labour leads and unprecedented leads in some cases, uh, it's causing some, um, some to want to ditch the Prime Minister already four weeks into her uh, job. Matthew Paris, uh, normally a supporter of the, uh, um, the government, uh, the Conservatives anyway, uh, in the Times wrote, the Parliamentary Conservative Party must urgently cut itself free of what will soon be the political corpse of its leadership. 
the prime minister must be dispatched now. Uh, so that's something that he penned uh, in the Times. Uh, in defense of the government, uh, its intention is to grow the economy. As the uh, prime minister explained, if we are able to enlarge the pie of the economy, then each of our spending commitments will receive a bigger slice, more for the NHS, more for the pensions, more for welfare, more for our capital projects. Uh, the other point the government is at pains to make, and it is fair that it makes this point, is that a significant amount in its mini budget was devoted to help the public to pay for its energy bills by imposing a cap. This would have meant, or this means as a consequence of the government intervention, that a typical household will pay no more than £2,500 a year, as opposed to what was expected would have been a typical household bill of six to six and a half thousand bit. So it has uh, given a helping hand and it has to be applauded for what is uh, what it has achieved in that respect. Critics say that though the latter may be a grand inter- intervention worthy of uh, appreciation, uh, the drawback is that it is being funded by borrowing instead of through windfall taxes on energy companies. Even the CEO of Shell has asked the government for additional taxes to be imposed on its windfall profits to help the needy. And uh, this uh, brings into sharp focus the intransigence of the government to to yield to this particular way of funding that uh, intervention. And sadly, the government is too ideologically uh, minded to do this. And for that reason, it is being pilloried uh, in the press and uh, by the public. Last week's YouGov poll put Labour in an unprecedented, uh, in recent times, lead of 33% of the Conservatives, 54% for Labour, as opposed to 21% for the the ruling party. Uh, So it is... uh, uh, figure, or it is a result, or it is a poll that uh, is uh, spells doom for the uh, ruling party, and something that uh, brings into sharp focus the attention of uh, backbenchers and MPs who fear that they're going to be losing their seats, and they need some kind of uh, action. And one of the action being contemplated is that uh, during these um, times, very early times for the new government there is a consideration of having uh, a new leader, dare I say, a new leadership election. Many would balk at it, but um, that is some, certainly something on the cards. Um, there is, of course, uh, news about uh, the Ahmadi uh, Muslim community. Uh, I don't know whether Imam Toki you can mention. I, um, I think that we need to uh, mention and re-mention this, uh, uh, this landmark uh, occurrence in America, the uh, uh, establishment and the opening of the uh, Fatih Azim Mosque. Absolutely. Uh, from the significance of it. Yes, absolutely. You're right. Um, and uh, this was something that, uh, you know, the um, the Muslim community got to three see through MTA, um, you know, some of the, uh, his holiness, uh, his Friday sermon that he delivered um, from Zion and Illinois, from the uh, newly built mosque for Tezim. Um and uh, not only that, not only the Friday sermon, but there was also a reception 
with the various dignitaries that were held over there and uh, so this is something that we I just wanted to cover um, and this news art- article itself is from Press Ahmadiyya and it reads that reception held for new Ahmadiyya Mosque which opened in Zion by the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and on the 1st of October the world head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community the 5th Caliph His Holiness Hazim Zamsur Ahmad he delivered the keynote address at a special reception held to commemorate the opening of Fateh Azim Mosque, the meaning the Great Victory, and this was in Zion, Illinois. <coughs> and His Holiness had officially inaugurated the mosque a day earlier with his weekly Friday sermon. So this reception was attended by more than 140 guests, including politicians, faith leaders and local residents and the highlight of the event was the keynote address delivered by His Holiness during which he spoke of the grand prophecy of the promised Messiah peace be upon him regarding Alexander Dowie the founder of the city of Zion and how it was fulfilled and His Holiness mentioned the response how the res- the response of the and the reaction of the promised Messiah peace be upon him to Dowie's hatred for Islam more than a century before was a magnificent example of resistance in the face of immense provocation and hostility and this itself is a great prophecy um, as at that time we realized that Alexander Dowie he was no ordinary man but having been the founder of the city of Zion he was someone who at that time uh, was at great power and pristine and uh, if we read into the documentary of Alexander Dowie, we find that he was someone um, who was very rich and he was a religious man, an evangelist. Um, however, his hate for Islam had spread and uh, his mission was to wipe out Islam. And uh, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, the founder of the Amdi Muslim community, he came to find out about his plans and so the, the, the there was a prayer duel between Alexander Dowie and the promised Messiah peace be upon him the promised Messiah being very much older to Alexander Dowie um, and uh, you know the, the promised Messiah himself had very as, as we know from history that his health was also very weak um, but yet in this prayer duel uh, we see that ultimately it was the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, who was victorious, um, and you know the 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 message of Islam, uh, you know building bridges um, and helping one another. That ultimately, that message of of uh, of Islam triumphed, and <clears throat> we see that Alexander Dowie, he himself, you will not even find a single member now uh, of his community there in Zion. So. Uh, Throughout his uh, address, his holiness, he speak of the of the vital importance of religious freedom within the society, and introducing the mission of the promised Messiah peace be upon him. His holiness said that he came according to the prophecies of the Holy Quran and the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of, of Allah Taala be upon him, <coughs> to revive the teachings of Islam at a time when Muslims had moved away from the spiritual roots of Islam. So explaining the message of the promised Messiah, His Holiness, he said that 
<clears throat> the promised Messiah proclaimed that he would convey the teachings of Islam whilst walking upon the spiritual footsteps of the Messiah of Moses, the Prophet of Jesus, peace be upon him. Thus, like Prophet Jesus, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he exhibited sympathy and compassion for mankind, and his every word and deed were for the sake of peace and to cultivate a spiritual reconciliation in society and he reminded his followers that the very meaning of Islam is peace and security and that following his advent Islam would return to its spiritual roots and would one day be recognized the world over as a religion of love tolerance peace and harmony and uh, just to conclude on this uh, his holiness he said that uh, he said in his in, in the concluding address that it is absolute honor and privilege for me to welcome so this so there was also dignitaries that were um, that were there and one of the dignitaries the honorable Billy McKinney mayor of Zion he said um, on this that on this occasion that it was an absolute honor and privilege for me to welcome His Holiness Azam Zamsur Ahmed, the world leader of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, to the city of Zion for the inauguration of the Fateh Azim Mosque. And he said that we are truly honored that you have traveled thousands of miles to be with us here this evening here at Zion. And this, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, is a community that revives the Prophet of Islam who made a covenant with Christians promising that his followers would help and support Christians in repairing their churches and would even lay down their lives to protect and defend those churches from any threat. This is the creed and tradition of that and the Muslim community embodies here today in the city of Zion. Blessed to be guided by His Holiness, the community has reached out to people of all faiths with a message of peace, justice, <coughs> universal human rights and service to humanity. And uh, in th in this auspicious occasion, also, um, His Holiness was presented uh, the key of City of Zion. So that was also um, a highlight of the event. Mm. Um, so yeah, that, that that's just the no, no, press release it's, from. It's, 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 it's a remarkable story, isn't it? Um, from uh, when we look back um, to those heady years of 1903. Um, how this city was established <coughs> by by Alexander Derby, and how he he announced that he wanted and he wished and prayed for the destruction of Muslims and for Islam, and uh, how uh, events that followed uh, with the prayer deal then transformed uh, the future completely to such an extent that, uh, as you were mentioning, none of his uh, followers uh, exist today. And he's only known because of that deal between him and the uh, the founder of the community, and uh, it also, I suppose, um, brings into sharp focus or epitomizes the uh, the motto of the Muslim community of love for all, hatred for none. And he who preached hatred for Muslims and the destruction of Muslims was overcome by the love uh, that was being promoted by the founder of the Muslim community for all humanity. And he was also, I mean, I also watched uh, uh, the uh, inauguration, mm. the special reception. It was heartening to find that the speakers, all the speakers, were very much 
congratulating, appreciating mm. the uh, the community, despite the fact that they themselves were from, I suppose, a Christian background, but they were very much in favour of what had taken place and supporting and appreciating it. Absolutely. So it's um, it was great. Um, it was a great event. Anyway, um, Imam uh, uh, Farid will be leading us uh, f- when it comes to the first item, which is about psychology experts, uh, in a few minutes. But let me just finish uh, with the news uh, round uh, with this particular item. It's about uh, the king's coronation or plans for it. Uh, the king assumed his role immediately uh, on the demise of the late queen, as is traditional. But his coronation has yet to take place. Uh, various dates have been mooted, and it looks like uh, it would be on the 3rd of June. Do you know why the 3rd of June is so significant? Because you're a football fan. Uh, that's the day of the FA Cup final. So uh, we're wondering whether the FA Cup final will uh, be moved. Um, but uh, should uh, maybe both events will happen on the same day. Uh, but I think that's unlikely. Uh, the king will be 74 next year and the oldest person to be crowned in British history. It will be done in Westminster Abbey and um, safety restrictions uh, now limit um, the number of people that can attend to about 2,000. Um, interestingly, the sem- ceremony will involve the king uh, to be anointed with oil and then crowned with the uh, crown of St. Edward. Uh, I think that's Edward the Confessor. Is the last uh, Anglo-Saxon king um, to have ruled um, England. So that's something uh, to look forward to, as is the World Cup. Are you going to the World Cup? I know you're quite a football fan. Qatar? I would uh, like to, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but thankfully I'll be watching uh, in the comfort oh. of my home. <laughs> okay, with your family, <laughs> yes. The best way to watch it, yes. Um, yeah, uh, tickets are quite expensive, that's what I hear. And the weather is very, very hot. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, Imam Fried, uh, what's the first uh, main uh, item that we have to discuss? So the first story we have today is the psychology experts, uh, social media giants to increase transparency around algorithm to protect algorithms to protect users' mental health. Now, the appearance-based social media platforms like TikTok appear to be particularly harmful to users' body image. On these platforms, teenagers are continually exposed to filtered and edited content that presents unrealistic body standards. According to recent evidence, this distorted environment increases a user's risk of body dissatisfaction and harmful conditions like body dysmorphia and eating disorders. In their report, Harriger and her team explained that these effects may be ex- exacerbated by social media algorithms that personalize the content shown to users. These algorithms rabbit hole users into content that is more extreme, less monitored, and made to keep them on the platform. Importantly, the harm caused by these algorithms is not unknown to social media companies, as evident. As evidence from as evidenced by recent whistleblower testimonies, former Facebook executive Francis Hogan leaked documents revealing that the social media giant was aware of research linking its products to mental health 
and body image issue among teenagers. A TikTok whistleblower later leaked evidence of an algorithm that carefully manipulates the content shown to users, prioritizing emotionally triggering content in order to maintain their engagement. In their article, Harriger and, and colleagues outline recommendations for combating these algorithms and protecting the mental health of social media users. First, they emphasize that the main responsibility lies with the social media companies themselves. The authors reiterate suggestions from the Academy for Eating Disorders, AED, stating that social media companies should increase the transparency of their algorithms, take steps to remove accounts sharing eating disorder, disordered content, and make their research data more accessible to public. The researchers add that social media platforms should disclose to users why the content they see in their feeds was chosen. They should also limit micro-targeting, a, a marketing strategy that targets specific users based on their personal data. Further, these corporations are socially responsible for well-being of their users and should take steps to increase awareness of weight stigma. This can be done by consulting body image and eating disorders, disorder, disorder experts on ways to encourage the positive body image among users, perhaps through the promotion of the body positive content on platform. Next, the influencers can also play a role in impacting their followers' body image by well and well-being. Herriger and her colleagues suggest that influencers should also consult body image experts for guidelines on body positive messages messaging positive actions must uh, might include informing their audience about social media algorithms and encouraging them to fight the negative effects of algorithm by following and engaging with body positive content researchers educators and clinicians can examine ways to prevent the negative impact of social media on body image. It is difficult to empirically research on the effect of algorithms because every user's experience is personal, personally tailored towards their interest. For example, what they've clicked on or viewed in the past. Harriger noted that research can however examine the use of social media literacy programs that address the role of algorithms and equip young users with tools to protect their well-being while on social media. Thank you, um, Imam Fareed. If you can um, uh, just, if I just interrupt you, I just want to share with you something that uh, Dr. Lloyd, um, uh, who spoke to us earlier, had to say. So Lloyd Cedra, MD, is a psychiatrist for public health doctor and nonfiction writer. He is an adjunct professor at the Columbia University School of Public Health, who has been chief medical officer of McLean Hospital, a Harvard teaching hospital, mental health commissioner of NYC in the Bloomberg administration and chief medical officer of the NYS Office of Mental Health, the nation's largest state MH agency. He has published 13 books, the first seven of for medical professionals, two with multiple editions, and more recently, six for a general audience. 
He has published 500 articles for print and online publications, including the NYT, Tennessean, the WSJ, Scientific American, Lancet, Medscape, The Atlantic, The Tennessean Commonwealth, and The US News and World Report, where he wrote an opinion column. He was a medical editor for mental health at the Huffington Post, where more than 200 of his articles, audios, and videos appeared. He currently is a contributing writer for the Psychology Today with over 100 articles, Psychiatric Times, and the New York Journal of Books. Good morning and welcome to the Voice of Islam Radio Breakfast Show. Good morning. It's good to be here and uh, I love the topic, the importance of it, and uh, the information uh, that we can provide. Okay, so for the benefit of our listeners, could you explain some of the benefits and harms of social media and can it be addictive like drugs? Yes, uh, let me start with the benefits. It's always better to start with the positive before moving on. What it can do and has done is reduce isolation, which was one of the primary goals during COVID because of public health efforts to control the epidemic, the pandemic, everybody was said stay at home, isolate uh, essentially. And that's been one of the most difficult parts of COVID because it denies us a essential need, which is time with other people and with youth, with their friends, uh, hardly anything could be more important. In addition on the benefits, when it's working well, a person who's part of it has the experience of, I am not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not the only one with this or that, thinking this or that. I'm part of a community. And in that respect, it's a channel for self-expression, like a journal might be, only more public. So these are important benefits, but they're importantly weighed against uh, some of the harms. And looking at the harms opens up the difference between what may have been intended in social media, creating community, and what actually often has happened, which is to create competition, envy, and self-criticism. And what I mean by that is, when do you, have you seen a, uh, or heard a social media commentary where a young person is there talking about her or his distress, talking about their, the, the challenges that they're facing, talking about loneliness? No, what usually happens is there's some photo of a person that they put up and they look very pretty, they look very put together. There's no sense that they are like the rest of the world in some sort of a distress state, particularly during uh, COVID. And what that does for many people, particularly vulnerable people, is that they uh, uh, create envy. I want to be like that or competition. I should be like that. I should do better. And in the end, what that does is result in self-criticism. I'm not so pretty. I'm not so articulate. I'm not so put together. And one other harm I want to mention, because it's become very prominent and very troubling. I reviewed a documentary recently called Sexploitation. And it's a documentary about how social media or other activities like a personal website, affinity groups, are being used to prey on youth. 
that predators troll through these different social media sites and identify pretty well now who might be vulnerable to uh, their effort to engage, to form a friendship. And with that, they, uh, the predator begins to ask the person, the youth, for more and more, particularly photos. Photos, finally, we are with photos with clothing and then photos without clothing. And at that point, uh, the predator has the youth hostage because the predator has these photos, can make them public, send them to the family, et cetera, et cetera. And this is going on and, uh, uh, and it's, uh, going on internationally, uh, not just uh, in my country. It's mm, very interesting. And can it be addictive like drugs? Yes. What addictive means, I think, in this, uh, in this case is, does the brain experience some sort of hit of dopamine, some hit of pleasure, some need to... Uh, repeat the experience that happens with uh, drugs, it happens with alcohol, it even happens uh, with gambling, with video games and whatnot. So the brain is being triggered. Uh, the dopamine uh, reward center of the brain is being triggered. And what that does is cause, after a while, pretty soon craving. I want more of that. And that's uh, what anything can do, eating and these social media as well. The more somebody engages in them, the more their uh, brain reward center is seeking and obtaining uh, pleasure or comfort uh, from it. And then, more, and then with that comes the craving. I want more of that. And what age does social media affect the most? And at what age do we start to see young children impacted? I don't know precisely, but I do know a few things that we can appreciate and help answer your question. The first is exposure, which is dose. The more somebody is on social media, the more the dose that they're receiving every day. And like anything, the greater exposure leads to greater potential problems. Exposure is one factor. So you know, knowing how much a child or youth is uh, engaged is really important because of the dose effect. Then um, there's the uh, understanding the importance of a peer group in terms of who's most vulnerable. And there you uh, go right to the teenage years where there's nothing more important than their friends, than their peer group. So that makes them particularly more vulnerable than perhaps a younger child or a young adult. There's also vulnerability in that person that there's existing depression or anxiety, substance use and abuse and eating disorder, isolation. All of these are uh, all of these are ground, uh, fertile ground. All of these are fertile ground for uh, somebody to be uh, engaged uh, because they need uh, that contact and they're looking for some relief from these different experiences. And last uh, is parental controls. And that's really a terrible term because what it is about uh, 
parents is a bit much better is that it's parental time talking with their youth, not criticizing, not telling them what to do, but instead asking, oh, what did you see? What did you read? Did, did that affect you at all? That's how parents can engage youth in uh, some type of dialogue, some way of reflecting on their engagement in social media. Parents have a role. And does it have an impact on issues like body image? This is an important question. It goes back to what I said earlier. Have you seen any social media posts where a youth talks about problems with body image that says, oh, I'm too heavy, or my face is not pretty, I'm not tall enough, et cetera, et cetera. No, not likely. Instead, the social media posts are, look at me, look at me in my bathing suit, in my gym clothes, in my prom dress, which fosters comparisons, body image distortions, and a view that the uh, viewer or listener the youth needs to be like that and because they're not they are somehow or other defective or problem full of problems and of course negative views by the youth of his or her body so yes uh, it certainly can impact body image because of the nature of what's posted and how people um, compare themselves to uh, somebody who look looks like they have it all together and how has social media usage changed and what impact has it had with um, the enhancement of technology and during the pandemic? Also a very good question, and it takes us into the world of artificial intelligence, AI. And over the years, these online channels, these online businesses have become increasingly capable of selectively directing their messaging to those people who might be the most likely listeners. And so it's not a flooding the airwaves. It's about getting the message or getting uh, on the affinity group or social media, uh, some group that is particularly drawn to social media in the right age group, maybe in a certain part of the country or socioeconomically, AI is a focus. And that really gives these channels much more power uh, to uh, engage people in their messaging. The other thing I mentioned before is uh, the impact of uh, online of predators. And they have become, frankly, better at the evil that they practice. Uh, they get, they're being reinforced. They have a higher volume of people to scout from. They've learned what works and what doesn't work. So the development of social media has also been uh, for, uh, you know, food for uh, predators to use. And then finally, the pandemic has increased all forms of digital media. And we've been generally encouraged that because particularly, not just adults, but for youth particular, they've lost time with friends. They're not in school. They're not in other settings like sports or music with other youth. That is a tremendous loss uh, for people who, uh, for youth and 
many others as well. And that's the impact of this uh, technology because it is identifying and engaging those youth who don't have what they need for a normal life, which is time with friends. That's brilliant. And um, I think you have touched on this a little bit, but I'll just um, ask you, how can parents and schools help support children struggling with mental health and navigating social media in a healthy manner? Yes, thank you for the chance for us to look a little more carefully at that question. And I'm going to answer the question in terms of parents, because that's where the control is. You as parents, you as family do have the capacity to do something. You have some control, whereas controlling a school or controlling teachers in that setting, uh, that's pretty hard to achieve. So start with what you can do, where your control is, uh, uh, is present and can be exercised. One example I like to use is that there was a uh, study out of the uh, Columbia Substance Use uh, uh, Association, Col Columbia sorry, I hope you can correct it, Columbia uh, Alcohol and Substance Abuse Institute. Uh, and uh, that study I de demonstrated that time with family, a family dinner every night whenever possible, no texting, no TV, actually had a really important effect in reducing youth youth becoming engaged and uh, dependent upon drugs. And the uh, shining example of that uh, was uh, the Obamas, that the president and first lady made a point of having dinner. I imagine he was interrupted a bit every evening at six o'clock with their two daughters and maybe with grandma, uh, who was also living with them. That family dinner is about enabling a child to feel part of a family, to not feel alone, and to talk about what's going on. And that's how you influence a child is not by telling them, but by <coughs> listening. And the listening can't uh, be positive enough. Uh, that uh, don't, it's not about criticizing, it's not about telling children or youth how to make decisions, but how to think through making decisions. How can they decide about taking a, a hit uh, of a pot during lunch or taking some pills? How do they decide that skill building in the youth without telling them what to do? Because if they walk through that, they're apt to think, oh, hmm, it's noon. If I smoke this stuff now, I'm going to be a mess when it comes to soccer practice a few hours later. And then I've got uh, homework tonight, a test tomorrow. I'm going to be fuzzy. Hmm, it's probably not such a good idea. And that's a way of saying no, which is also very hard for youth to say no to some other uh, person who is offering them a blunt or whatnot. They're thinking it through and they're explaining and they're saying, well, not now. The other important role of uh, parents, which they often do, but aren't, isn't, don't necessarily have confidence in, is are there signs that your child is in distress? 
And that was more evident, uh, will be more evident with COVID receding because the signs of a youth in distress are isolation, are not wanting to be with friends, not on the phone all the time, uh, not eating very much, uh, not coming to dinner. These are the signs that your uh, child, that a youth is in distress. And these are the moments that beg the question, well, if you see that and you talk to your spouse that are they seeing it too? So it validates what you're seeing, it begs the question, then what do you do and what not to do? And here, I'd like to refer your listeners to a TEDx talk I did a few years ago, which answers these questions, which talks about four ways of communicating with, in, the, uh, in that instance, with somebody who has a mental problem. And there are ways to do this and there are ways to uh, succeed. So rather than try to give a TEDx talk now, take a look at that. You can find it on YouTube. Oh, thank you so much. And if you could just um, tell us how we could find that as well. Um, um, I would just Google a Setterer a TEDx uh, talk, and I th the title of it. Don't be uh, don't be discouraged. I don't don't uh, don't. It, it's much bigger than that. But the title is um, when mental illness enters the family. And it is, it takes up the question, or how do you know that this is going on, a mental illness or anything, a distressed substance use is going on. Uh, and that's about observing. That's not about judging. That's about getting validation from somebody else who is close and you trust, like a spouse or sister, brother, whatever. And what you can do and what you shouldn't do. I'll give one example of what really doesn't work. Don't get into fights. That is one of the most common problems that we all have with the, within a person who uh, we're worried about or a person whom we want to influence. Think of uh, what happens if you're in a foreign country and you're lost and you go up to uh, somebody who lives there and says uh, in your own native language, uh, how do I get to the train station? And they look at you befuddled because you're speaking English and you're not speaking Spanish or German or uh, Russian or whatever. Um, and what is it that people do at that moment when somebody looks puzzled about what they're talking about? They raise their voice. They talk louder as if that person didn't hear them instead of recognizing that that person couldn't understand them. And that's the same thing with uh, within families is that when uh, uh, push comes to shove and there's differences, families, parents in particular, raise their voices. And there's nothing more effective than driving somebody away than raising your voice. Thank you so much. That's very interesting. And um, finally, um, social media giants use logarithms to manipulate their consumers. Should more be done to ensure that these giants do not impact people's mental health? Now, that's a uh, really ideal uh, 
an idealistic uh, idea to try to achieve, but it's not apt to happen. It's illusory that we think that we can influence these big corporations where money dominates, multi-billion corporations, which are looking to have hundreds of millions of listeners and participants. Their primary goal is to succeed, to gain money, to gain listeners, not the public good. And what you're talking about is about how do we get these potential channels, these useful channels to do the public good. Uh, and that's not apt to happen. And government monitoring will never do enough because it's just too, it's just too broad a spectrum of activity and government is not all that good at this or putting resources into it. So don't expect the giants to control themselves. It's about our controlling what comes into our lives and our youth's lives and influencing that because they're not going to stop doing that. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome back to the Black Pressure of the Way of Islam with Imam Tabkir Ahmed, Imam Farid Ahmed, and myself, Farid Ahmed. The time is two minutes past eight. It's Friday, the 7th of October 2022. Just before the uh, news break, we were listening uh, to Dr. Lloyd Seder on this issue about. Um, about the um, uh, about psychology experts and the needs for social media giants to increase transparency around algorithms that's necessary apparently to protect users' mental health. And just to sum up what um, um, Imam Farid was saying, that uh, as far as this uh, website is concerned that prompted uh, this particular topic, overall it says that overall the researchers of this uh, particular um, study conclude that social media corporations have an ultimate responsibility to protect the well-being of other users. Uh, and I quote, we reinforce that system level change needs to occur so that individual users can effectively do their part in preserving their own body image and well-being. Uh, so this is what the researchers said, and they also said that social media corporations need to be transparent about how content, how content is delivered if algorithms continue to be used, and they need to provide users with clear ways to easily opt out of uh, content that they do not wish to see. So that's basically the conclusion of that particular uh, study. Uh, we also spoke earlier to Professor Anna Serrano Taleria uh, regarding this particular uh, topic, uh, and uh, she's the Associate Professor at the University of Castilla-La Mancha, uh, and this is what she had to say. Okay, I'm joined on the line by Anna Serrano Taleria, and she is a professor from um, the University of Castilla-La Mancha in Spain. Um, she has research interests in corporate and intercultural communication, entrepreneurial journalism, media studies, digital mobile, on and offline communication and design, performing and stage arts. And she also does a lot of collaboration with other universities in Portugal and Amsterdam. So thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Voice of Islam Radio Breakfast Show. Hi. So, so nice um, to meet you again. And it's a pleasure 
being invited by you and, and be able to share our, well, our experience with you. <laughs> okay, so we are discussing the topic of media and how social media giants use information from logarithms, which can have a harmful effect on individuals. For the benefit of our listeners, could you explain how they utilize such logarithms and why they do so? Um, mainly, uh, our main con con concern as uh, academic is not only, um, I mean, uh, the advertising or the um, taking benefits from our data, no, in, in a commercial way. This is the most extended uh, one. It's just uh, employing our data, no. It's like making a, a very detailed profile of ourselves, which kind of uh, web page we visit, our activity, everything, everything we do, everything we share is monitoring and recording to make a detailed profile of ourselves for the commercial purposes. No, it's very basic. It's obviously we have to be um, aware of, of that because previously um, for the, you know, for the business to get that uh, information, we, we get paid. If we remember these this surveys, no, making by the business uh, enterprises, uh, asking you, your age, asking you about different data, so they collect that data to study the, the market. But right now, all those data are recorded by our activity online. So obviously, we have to uh, defend that for that information, we should get paid or get some kind of um, counterpart, because they are using uh, our personal information for that purpose. And th that said, this is the one of the reasons that they argue is that they are um, providing us with free tools. Um, in, in this sense, uh, many uh, many audience, when we have make a research, and they uh, agree with that because almost uh, 40, 50% of the users of the audience um, agree, they freely agree, that these uh, social media or business models um, take uh, advantage of that information because they are using those tools for free. But um, we defend that it should, there should be you know, like a kind of um, uh, protection, both from the government and for being restricted and the overall public being informed which are those specific benefits and specific um, activities. That's the reason right now, if you enter into a web page and that um, they have changed the cookies model. No? Now they have to specify what kind of cookies they are employing um, or not. But the reality is that this very instant, quick, um, no, superficial activity we have online, and most of people don't read the terms of policies, which are very ambiguous and confusing. And also it's all the time changing. No? The terms and policies conditions of this application at platforms are all the time changing. So it's very difficult for the audience to really know what are the rights because of that constant uh, changing. And on, on, on the other part, now they have been obliged no, uh, to specify, for example, of the use of, uh, of, of cookies. But um, most people, we observe that they accept without reading 
no? because of this very quick and constant. So on, on the one hand, we recommend the users that despite it's not very um, comfortable to be reading all these kind of things, they, they should do so. And uh, most important, we should put more pressure on the governments, on the European Union, on the, the UK, in, in the case of UK, on all, all the continents, not to put pressure for those uh, social media applications, platforms, to really be more clear about what are our rights. This is one side, no? And this the basic one, the commercial employing uh, our data for that simple uh, commercial, commercial purposes, no? To know the audience, to, to know about it. The second stage, which is more worry about it, we as, as academics, because it's related to um, the way we construct ourselves, no? what we call the self, no? our identity, our um, human being <laughs> essence. No? We um, uh, make uh, relationships with other people, we share our data, we make friends, etc., no? and so on. So these algorithms, when they are uh, telling you all the time which kind of content no, you access, obviously you could access all the content from, uh, for free, let's say. But this is what we call mediated memories no? or the algorithmic self. It's when we enter into the internet and appear a specific content because the algorithm has checked our activity and um, suggest us to visit some kind of things and others not, no? So they are telling us, uh, pro proposing us what to see, what to share, no? They are guiding that path. That is very mm, harmful for us because we think that we are free, but we are not. And memories and the thing we remember, no? In, in the case of, no, in these applications, oh, see that pictures. It's very nice, but if you reflect on that, you have to bear in mind that it's not you selecting that content that you access the first, it's other one. And mm, the activities and the memories and the things we do and we remember, all those activities um, are very essential for the construction of ourselves. I mean, when we are alone, when we are reflecting about uh, what we have done, what we would we, we like to do, all these special moments with ourselves are constructing what we are as human beings. So if, if all that, that process is mediated, is conducted, but those algorithms suggesting us what type of content we have to see, we have no, we well suggest because they, they suggest. Obviously, they they do not um, oblige you, but they are suggesting a kind of um, way of consuming things. They are influencing influencing you, and um, the way you learn and the way you behave. Uh, I, I I think that I have tried to explain this um, difficult concept uh, clearly. If not, please uh, tell me to. No, to thank you so much. Um, and, um, wait, 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 wait a minute, please, because it's at first uh, you think that, uh, oh, no, it's not so important that they suggest to, to see things, no, or, or they suggest me to, to, to consume those kind of things. 
But at the end, yes, it is really, really important. Because obviously, yes, you can close that windows, no, suggesting you to consume things and go other way. But, but most of the times, you consume that. And you uh, see uh, those, no, those memories, those mediated memories uh, that they give to you when they select for you special pictures and some kind of, um, of, of content. And so they are delimiting de de yourself which kind of content you are consuming. And this is very important for us because we choose which activities to do or, or not to do. So if they are directed or suggested by an algorithm, is really harmful for the construction of, of yourself. So we have those levels, no? The commercial purposes, we have to bear um, to, and to fight more to protect, no? okay, if you are using my data, just give me some counterpart and, and also to make clear uh, policies. Um, right now, in, in a third level, we have this uh, hacking uh, level in, uh, in terms of you have to be really, um, 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 I mean, um, careful when, you, especially in this kind of type of video games, no, that appear like advertising, because they can uh, charge you a lot, and and you do not know that they are charging you because you know it's like a pop up appear there and an advertise. Oh, let's play here, and they are charging you know so through the, your through your mobile line phone. So this is the third level of really uh, taking your money away so you have these three levels which are really really important to to bear in mind and um, what are some of the risks with social media accessing our data well i, I we have um, previously explained no, in, mm -hmm. in the, the, the first risk is the commercial purposes mm, then we have this construction of the self no psychology concept more think uh, about it no for example right now and with uh, especially with the teenagers and adolescents there is a high risk of uh, anxiety of um, depression of even suicide at a um, worldwide uh, level because because of this uh, selected content no these uh, selected memories on the one hand and also because social media create um, an idealistic uh, bubble worlds that doesn't have to do with the reality. Mm -hmm. So we are always seeing the publications of other people like, um, oh, this is a fantastic life. Oh, this is a, um, those um, bubbles and those uh, idealistic worlds that do not have many times a lot to do with the real life. They are creating really uh, um, depression, suicides, and anxiety for the teenagers and adolescents. No, this is a very um, worry uh, situation um, uh, about it. And all, all, um, obviously, we we could talk about the bullying things that are much more <clears throat> amplified through the use of the social media. But specifically, with uh, in terms of the social media themselves and the algorithms is this uh, situation of the um, that they are selected uh, selecting the the content that you access and guiding you even you could do it for, for free you could navigate for free but uh, they are like uh, saying to you okay these are your memories these are the content you have to see and they are guiding you and this is really 
really important because you should be free for that, no? And, and, and this uh, constant uh, connectivity and immediacy is creating a lot of harm in terms not only because they they make the uh, um, they take your your data and make commercial purposes for that, but also at, at the level of your personality and the construction of, of the self. Also, we have a, another line of um, research, with but it's more linked not only with social media but with the simple use of the mobile phones and the governments and how the governments are employing the mobile phones to track the migrants' uh, situations. And this is uh, also an, an alarming uh, situation because we have to um, protect the privacy of the migrants uh, and at what level they could uh, follow, check, and you know, and be uh, all the time over with the location, uh, tracking you know, the migrants' uh, movement and the migrants' uh, situation. On the other side, uh, also social media, mobile phones are helping a lot uh, migrants to keep in touch with the family, to make groups, to share the problems, to share the situations. You know? So with technology and with social media, we have the two sides, you know? but it's a, a technology that uh, amplifies a lot, both the positive and the, um, and the negative. You know? And obviously in terms of the social media, as mentioned uh, before, there are two branches, you know? the commercial purposes that will, governments and entities should work more on, on, on that to oblige um, this uh, application and platforms to be clear about the policies and and we should bear in mind that nothing is free on the internet. They are using uh, our data for commercial purposes and on the other side that uh, what we see on social media and that we see is like a selected uh, process making by an algorithm that is telling us no how we we should in very in on very how we should live at the end because if we are all the time consuming social media that's that that reality and that reality doesn't have much to do with the real with the real world no and this mm -hmm. It's very worrying about, especially in 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 the sense of the teenagers and adolescents, no? that they are experimenting the consequences uh, the consequences of the constant con connectivity, and the uh, I mean the suicides and anxious and depression between these generations are quite quite higher mm -hmm. than previous ones. It's a very vast topic and it's very interesting as well. Um, You've also written about power dynamics. What types of power dynamics are observed in the digital sphere and how can this be harmful? Mm, well, uh, especially on, on Twitter, we have experimented that um, power struggles um, the employing social media. And the main worry, let's say, to, to simplify the, the concept is the um, amplification of a dialogue or amplification of uh, misinformation, disinformation, uh, amplification of, of uh, false information that uh, on Twitter goes very, very quick. It could be also on Facebook on other platforms. I mean, for example, TikTok has been revealed of one of the platforms that are more employed uh, in the, this uh, teenager adolescence uh, no, to, to access information on the one hand. 
And also that uh, most of the information that is currently on TikTok is false, is uh, not true. So this is very worrying about these power dynamics because if we have um, this, uh, the future generations, no, the future of, of our society, they are accessing the information through, I, I have put the, the, um, the example right now of, of TikTok, but it could be whatever uh, application or, or, or platform, no? They are accessing uh, most of the information to make decisions on society, which will be very important for them, no? Politics, uh, society, I mean, uh, legal uh, rights, uh, all, all, of, all, all these important matters for us as a society. And most of them are false, or they have employed different kind of disinformations. is very worried about it. This is a, a recent research made on TikTok, but in Twitter has happened the same, not that somebody throws an information that is false, but it really quicks, no moves, and it's, it's, it's like a very uh, quick uh, uh, false information that goes all, um, goes all along this digital sphere. And, and at the end, it's very difficult to, no, to recover maybe that truthful information or to put things in in, in the in balance this is one and recording the uh, meaning the the content but also um, these platforms themselves have uh, algorithms to promote that people uh, get more engaged no? and, and and as an example of, of that uh, many people working on these platforms um, any kind of, uh, of platforms from LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Twitter, whatever, have uh, left the works uh, there in, in these um, social media, uh, well, enterprises, uh, giants, because um, of ethical issues. And we have to bear in mind that these applications and platforms are specifically designed um, to make people addicted to and this 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 started from the very basis of the interface design or the design of the things the employment of colors uh, emoticons uh, a structure no a not clear structure so you click here and you click there they are specifically designed at different levels for you to get addicted to and from the psychology and neurobiology um, areas and the emotion of sharing, the emotion of uh, making no alike, and all these kind of things that are very basic uh, human feelings. They employ that for these uh, addictive, uh, addictive uh, patterns, no. And these power dynamics employ those uh, strategies to get more um, to get more interaction and to get more followers and to get more people using that so it's like a circle no a vicious circle mm -hmm. uh, fortunately uh, the risks uh, and the consequences of that uh, vicious uh, circle are so worry that uh, not only from the european union or different governments uh, no, worldwide they have put uh, an alarm and they are trying to control those GNs. But those GNs say, <laughs> that's what they say, and we, we well, we will give them the, the chance to, 
to be to, to believe in, in them, they say that they are working to make things better, no? Because the consequences of this uh, addictive, compulsive um, behavior, um, it's observed. Uh, of the uses of social media and also the power struggles and consequences of that for the society are really, really worried. No? So they say that they are working to try to make um, a balance uh, uh, of that. But obviously, we as users, as audience, we have to bear in mind uh, two things. No, or three things, let's say. Uh, nothing is for, for free, so we have to be very aware uh, about it. I am a lover of media, I am a media lover, and a media lover of, uh, of technology, because I think that we have right now, for example, we are having a, a little interview through Zoom, so technology has a lot of uh, potential, potentials, are, help, are helping many people, even with little resources, no? because they have the mobile phone and they can uh, connect with uh, people, they feel supported. In the case of migrants, it's really important not to feel supported, to, to, to feel connected. But as much potential we have in a technology, also there is the counterpart. No, It's like a coin, the, the ABC uh, sides of, of the thing. So also the risks are more uh, challenging and and the users should be uh, aware about it. And, and we should also be aware that because it's a, a technology that is specifically designed to create addiction, we have to, to know about it and to be aware about it because sometimes we think we are not really aware of how much time we spend on social media and how much time we spend on the, on, on the mobile phone, on, on checking things and that. And that um, connect, permanent uh, connectivity is creating uh, high levels of addiction, of anxiety and uh, depression, no? Because we live in a in a bubble, in a in a world that is not really connected with the reality. So it's like, yes, we have to to put an, an effort from everybody, education, governments, media to raise awareness about, okay, technology is really nice, has a lot of potential, but let's be aware about the risks, no? Um, and make a, a, a useful and a critic use of, um, of technology. And um, related to, um, to the digital gap or to the inequalities, no? So it's a technology that happens the, the same. If you have better technology, the technology gap at, at every level is, is, is higher, obviously. And we have experienced that at, at many levels. When we were in the pandemic, in the COVID, uh, the students, because myself, I, I am, uh, I teach, no? the, the students that have uh, a better technology have better access to the things. Even we make a lot of effort you know, to provide computers to all the students, and try to know to to uh, even provide with pen drives for connectivity, and so this uh, technology also generates um, income inequalities gap and access uh, gap. Um, in terms of um, education, if if they are smart or they are curious, they could check about it. No, they could be informed, but if not just the people that have access to those kind of media literacy will have a better knowledge about what is going on. No? So, yeah. The, Thank you. The, and, um, yeah. 
That's yeah. very interesting. And I was just wondering, finally, um, do you think governments should do more? Are they doing enough um, to make sure these media, social media giants are accountable for the harm that they're creating? Uh, no, no, they, they, they should, uh, at all levels, uh, we should do more, no? At, at all levels, I'm not, um, from governments to we as uh, as um, teachers, uh, professors, university, I mean, education at all levels, media uh, uh, as well, no? I'm providing uh, in more information about the media literacy, also the platforms uh, and the social media and themselves, they should be put in the situation of doing things right and inform people and contributed uh, to that. So obviously, yes, at, at, at all levels, um, we should put more emphasis on a technology that, but well, we have to bear in mind that well, we are talking about it because obviously uh, it's uh, related to our uh, <clears throat> to our world. But also we have to bear in mind that only one, I mean, only one, uh, one, it's one thirty, no, one three. Uh, of, I mean, um, two. Two two parts of the story because I I I my English is uh, right now I, I have uh, for, for, forgotten I have to say that sorry it's like uh, only one from three parts of the population have access to the internet mm. so okay we are talking about yes internet social media and so but we have to bear in mind that there are two parts from the three <laughs> of the world mm -hmm. that do, still do not have access to the to, to internet and, and to those things. But well, this is another dialogue and another debate. But just to, to bear in mind that well, worldwide we have a much more different situation. No? But in terms of the of the world, of this world that we have this uh, permanent uh, connectivity, yes, for sure. We should put more emphasis because it's a very um, potent and very um, it, it, it's a tool this is um, this technology and social media and so is so powerful that we have to put more emphasis on making a proper media literacy uh, education at, at all levels not only to protect our privacy and our um, our rights but also to be to be aware about the psycho psychology and neurological also uh, consequences of that um, of that employment of that use. Thank you so much, Professor Anna. It was a pleasure to have you on our program again. Right. Um, so that was uh, an exchange earlier recorded uh, with Professor. Uh, Teleria. She is uh, professor at the University of Castilla-La Mancha. Uh, and uh, to give us uh, the Islamic uh, viewpoint on this particular subject, here is Imam Tawkitri. I mean, <clears throat> I would just briefly say, as we are uh, running short on time here, so I, I, I will shortly here say that if we, w when it comes to social media, although at one side you do have your uh, negatives, there are also positives. Now, Islam, it teaches that moderation is, is the key. Uh, and that is why the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he said that moderation is best in all affairs. And even when it comes to the use of social media and using the internet, uh, there should be a balance to that. Um, and one should uh, stay away from the ill effects of it, um, as there are various ill effects of it. And everyone knows regarding that. And His Holiness has even said in one of his addresses in 2011 he said that 
and I quote that I have said that there are more harms of using Facebook and fewer benefits. Hence, our youth, especially the girls and those who do not have complete understanding of it, should not expose themselves on Facebook to such an extent that they themselves become trapped. Those who use Facebook should have a complete understanding and use it only to a certain extent. The creator of Facebook himself has said that there are no limits and no, no, and no one can expose themselves to everyone. A decent, religious and educated person cannot tolerate such things. So here His Holiness is talking about some of the bad influence, some of the ill effects of social media. But at the same time, His Holiness has also acknowledged the beneficial uh, aspect of social media as well as at one place. He has said that these days, as presented through earlier examples, many things lead to the displeasure of God and correct use of these things is not bad. However, their incorrect use leads to spread of foulness, evil, and sin. However, the same thing can also be a means of spreading goodness. So, at the end, I'll just say that uh, we need to be mindful of what are some of the ill effects of social media, and the right use should be adopted, not the wrong. Thank you very much. Um, now, moving on, we have to look at the second of our main topics for today. It's about uh, what uh, is now uh, a regular feature of our lives now that we are um, um, growing and living to a longer age than uh, previous in previous decades. And one of the conditions of, of ill health that is, that is being experienced and witnessed is related to the physical degeneration of uh, the brain uh, and that is very much exhibited by dementia. Now this particular study that uh, Imam Farid will uh, guide us through was um, found in Science Daily and uh, it uh, suggested that nightmares in middle age is somehow linked to dementia risk. In fact that's the title of that particular item. Uh, what did it have to say Imam Farid? Oh, yeah, so a new study published in the Lancet Journal E-Clinical Medicine suggests nightmares may become prevalent, prevalent several years, even decades before the characteristic memory and thinking problems of dementia set in. Dr. Abidemi or Taiku, if I'm pronouncing it right, of the University of Birmingham's Center of Human Brain Health said, we've demonstrated for the first time that distressing dreams or nightmares can be linked to dementia risk and cognitive decline among healthy adults in general population. This is important because there are few risks, few risk indicators for dementia that can be identified as early as middle age. While more work needs to be done to confirm these links, we believe bad dreams could be a useful way to identif identify individuals at high risk of developing dementia and put in place strategies to slow down the onset of the disease. In study, Dr. Otaiku examined data from three community-based cohorts in U USA. These included more than 600 adult men and women aged between 35 to 64 and 2,600 adults aged 
79 and older. All the patients were dementia-free at the start of the study and followed up for an average of nine years for the younger group and five years for the older participants. Now the study started collecting data between 2002 and 2012. And completed a range of questionnaires including the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, which includes a question on how often individuals experienced bad dreams. This data was analyzed using statistical software to find out whether participants with a higher frequency of nightmares were more likely to go on to experience cognitive decline and be diagnosed with dementia. The research shows that middle-aged people 35 to 64 who experience bad dreams on a weekly basis are four times more likely to experience cognitive decline over following decade while older people were twice as likely to be diagnosed with dementia. Interestingly, the study found that the the associations were much stronger for men than women. For example, older men experiencing nightmares on a weekly basis were five times more likely to develop dementia than older men reporting on bad dreams. In women, however, the increase in risk is only 41%. The next steps for research will include investigating whether nightmares among young people could be associated with future dementia risk and whether other dream characteristics such as how often we remember dreams and how vivid they are could also be used to identify dementia risk using EEG and magnetic resonance imaging MRI. The researchers also plan to investigate the biological basis of bad dreams in both healthy people and people with dementia. Thank you very much uh, for that, Imran Fareed. Um, so that was the uh, take uh, from the uh, uh, particular website that we were looking at, Science Daily, reporting on the uh, this study that was uh, published in the Lancet Journal. And uh, it, it is something that prompted our uh, choice of this particular topic. What is the uh, what is the religious angle to this, then, Imam Toki? Yes. So when when it comes to uh, sleep, uh, we see that all living things uh, they require rest after activity, and uh, because activity it entails wear and tear of living tissues, and when we rest, what it does is it repairs um and and during our sleep all those worn out cells they are actually replaced and waste products are eliminated and not only do humans need sleep but we see that also uh, animals also require sleep even we even see that in plants they too require sleep and if we look at the example for example the sunflower uh, they, we see that whenever they, uh, the sunflower sees the rays of the sun or the sun, it opens up its petals um, at, at that site. So, and it closes at dusk. So we see that not only animals need sleep, but also plants need sleep. So regarding the best time for sleep, um, it is known that night is the best time for it. And it is not a question of mere custom that people work during the day and go to sleep at night. And nature itself seems to have made 
The daylight hours specially suited for work and night time for sleep and rest, and, de and departure from this natural order causes great strain and results in ill health. And sleep interferes with metabolism and stimulates the power of assimilation, and prolonged sleep is accordingly injurious to health because it favors the absorption of foul vapors. And that is why a prolonged period of sleep depresses an individual instead of refreshing and invigorating him. And the advisability of alternating short periods of rest with short periods of activity is thus clear. An important practical point to remember in connection with sleep is that any idea which is present in the mind before going to sleep remains latent in subconscious mind throughout the night and, uh, and unconsciously molds our thoughts and actions. And Islam, it advises Muslims to say their late evening prayer, which is the Isha prayer in particular in congregation and in the mosque. And this commandment, it is good for the soul as well as for the body. Sleeplessness can be overcome by concentration of ideas at bedtime and factors which help in concentration and bring on sleep and are ablution at bed, bedtime, warm bath and hot drinks. And the Islamic teachings are all based on natural and sound hygienic principles and it would be a pleasant task to study the Islamic doctrines in light of modern sciences. And if we look at the example of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he generally, he went to bed early and got up a little late after midnight and for offering the voluntary prayers and then again taking a nap again in the forenoon. And some people assert that it is advisable to go to bed and get up late. But this is this practice is unsound as well as unnatural. And we find that all animals and birds get up early in the morning and a Muslim is commanded to get up early in the morning to say his prayers and his practice is natural as well as healthy and you know a lot of the a lot of the students even at the the theology institute Imam Farid you would agree as well that this was also our routine that uh, you know we, we would it would be lights out for us um, at the 11 o'clock at 11 o'clock and you know um, we should, everyone was told to sleep and get early up in the morning um, around the five o'clock around five o'clock on to, average yeah to read the morning prayers and even before that you know to offer their voluntary prayers <clears throat> and uh, generally what we find is that when someone wakes up early you know you've got such fresh air at that time you know one really does feel recharged and this was the example of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him that he would go go to sleep um, early um, and uh, he will get up in the middle of the night and uh, you know keep himself busy in the in remembering God Almighty and in terms of the direction of sleep um, of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him it says that sleeping on the back is unhealthy and it causes congestion of the spine which uh, sometimes results in night discharges and sleeping on the face is an unsound practice and sleeping mostly on the left side is injurious to health because it causes embarrassment, embracement of the heart and consequent interference with the blood supply of the brain. It also causes distressing dreams, uh, 
subnormalism and nightmares and scientific postures for sleep is lying on the right side and these facts have been established by modern medical research and they go go a long way to prove the divine quality of the islamic teaching as the holy prophet peace and blessing of god almighty be upon him he recommended his followers to sleep on the right side and the the head moreover should point to the north uh, because magnetic currents are constantly passing from north to south and they are in some mysterious manner connected with our nervous with our nerves which the body um, should not oppose and additionally the holy prophet peace be upon him he enjoined muslims to recite and meditate upon the text of the verse of the holy quran entitled as ayatul kursi and the last three chapters from the holy quran and before going to sleep and these verses are not recited like a charm as will be seen they deal with the most sublime attributes of god and as such deeply impress the mind of the individual in contemplation of these divine attributes it purifies and elevates the soul and one seeks protection with god from all evil ideas and mischievous things and this practice is in intelligently carried out becomes a great source of moral strength and it is also advisable to go to sleep soon after the evening meal the old adage that after supper walk a mile holds good at all times and islam advises muslims to say their evening prayer in particular in congregation in the mosque and this commandment is good for the soul as well as for the body um so you know this itself uh provides uh us a provides us a way of you know how uh, how important sleep is and how important it is to actually sleep at the night time uh, i mean we we live in a in a world nowadays uh, especially in in uh, i would say in the if you look at um especially the western countries uh you know you have morning shifts you have late shifts you have night shifts um so people who are doing night shifts they usually uh they would just sleep during the daytime hours however you even if you meet people like that who do sleep during the uh daytime hours you'd find that it's very difficult for them they're having problems with their sleep because in actual fact night time is the right time for a person to go to sleep um and you can't force yourself to start sleeping in daylight hours <clears throat> and generally if you meet those people you know they it does affect them a lot um and and this is this is uh this is what we find even through islam that night time is the best time for sleep uh, in any any other points you wanted to add yeah, so the quran fully agrees with the point that the night time is best time to sleep it says in the holy quran ajalna nawmakum subata ajalna layla libasa so which means that we have made your sleep to rest and we made night as a cover so it simply says that night time is the best time to sleep plus the fact that human body is designed in a way that needs a bit of sleep and it needs a bit of rest so humans can't just work 24/7 even if someone manages to do it for let's say few days or a few months even a year the efficiency will be affected so much so that at one point he will run out of gas at all so he won't be able to work properly plus the other point is that 
people think that okay we can sleep during the day and not sleep during the night will be good for us but the thing is it's as it says in the holy quran as well there's a reason why it's daytime and nighttime so if let's say if the sun was there 24 hours a day you won't be able to sleep properly and it's not good for your health and finally i would say that there's been research done experiments have been done the people where people have been asked not to sleep for let's say over 30 hours and then they were asked to carry out certain tasks which they did before that when they had good night sleep and they proved that deficiency has been affected so much so that to a point that they advisable not to do it at all if you haven't slept go take a nap and then start working absolutely and and sometimes uh, we see that you know if if you haven't had enough sleep um you can't work properly um and uh, sometimes you know you do need to take a power nap um and and only through those that little power nap of half an hour 40 minutes you know you, you feel a lot more recharged and 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 uh, if you that actually reminds me that <laughs> even during uh, the theology um institute jamia md uk we actually they they used to encourage us to sleep during the day just for maybe 1 hour or 30 minutes um i mean I, although i i never did it because mm-hmm. <laughs> i couldn't get get used to it um a lot of the students that did do it they said that it's it's very good you know you feel really recharged you feel really refreshed um after but, after but not doing the lecture Uh, sorry not doing the lectures <laughs> <laughs> so the nap had to be outside the lecture yeah. outside the lecture <laughs> <laughs> some is the best time to have a nap <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. and plus it says on the motorway as well that's better to yes. better late than never yeah. no <laughs> so, no uh, yeah. that that if you're feeling tired then you should exactly you should take, a never, you take a break take a services yeah. for a reason yeah. yeah and you need to stop there and take a bit mm-hmm. of rest mm-hmm. but in, um, in mediterranean countries uh, it is it is a practice that during uh, uh, the middle of the afternoon there is this siesta mm. that is uh, yeah. that is taken i mean if you go to spain uh, for example you'll see that uh, especially in the summer really in in the south where it's extremely hot around uh, 3 to 5 um around midday um you they won't you won't find anyone on the streets mm. um and the reason being is because uh, a lot of them uh, they uh <coughs> as this time for siesta a lot of them are just uh, snoozing or sleeping mm. so you you literally find streets which are empty and uh, this is actually uh, an islamic tradition as well as um even in the muslim countries this is practiced that uh, to sleep um for a, for a little while in the in mm-hmm. in um you know in the in the afternoon mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a bit of a power nap right so uh, if i can take take you back to the uh, to the question we were uh, talking about very early on about football uh, is this uh, is the world cup other uh, world cup matches going to be taking place in the evening then not in the afternoon because of the, it's going to be because of the temperatures or are they air conditioned stadiums I th- yeah I r- I remember reading that it will be air conditioned uh, stadium so um but I'm not too sure actually when the matches will be mm. um I'm guessing it will be in the evenings so uh but Qatar is couple of hours ahead of us isn't it 
Yeah. So. But many degrees in temperature higher than us. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> more important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, I wonder yeah, it's if quite hot. any of our listeners can, can ring in and uh, tell us more about uh, what we're seeking. So, so from the ske- uh, schedule, it, it says that, uh, uh, I mean, there's different timings. So some matches are happening around 10 in the morning. Some of them are happening at 4. Uh, some of them are happening seven, so you you've got a diverse uh, schedule of of different timings. Four, you're saying four? Yeah, there w- there's okay. there's matches which will be in the evening around four. Uh, there's matches uh, which will be around seven, so it's it's different timings. Okay. Um, and and I think the reason for that is because you've mentioned that. The stadium itself has yeah. AC, so yeah. it, sh- it shouldn't really, shouldn't really make a difference. Yeah, it shouldn't yeah. be a problem. Yeah. Okay, okay, but that, but but I think um, to the main point that we are actually dealing with is that um, we sh- we should uh, regulate the way that we are sleeping. That is uh, Islamic tradition, mm. and that uh, uh, after the late evening prayer, we should. Uh, uh, really go to bed, not carry on doing other things, and then get up early in the morning, and if necessary, have a have a have a siesta in the middle of the day. Um, so that would be uh, a good practice to adopt, and a healthy practice to adopt. Absolutely. Mm. And I mean, having mentioned that, um, I, I think we were covering this particular segment uh, last week or the week before that yeah, as well. And, uh, you know, one thing I, I mentioned earlier as well, that, uh, you know, S- Islam, it also explains that uh, we should look after uh, Salatul Wusta. That pr- and Salatul Wusta is a prayer which is uh, most affected. And in one of his addresses by His Holiness, he's mentioned that, uh, especially in the modern era now, that uh, Salatul Wusta it doesn't really have to be the... Zohar or the Asr prayer, the the, the mid midday prayer, but for most uh, nowadays in our society, it can be the morning prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, as uh, in nowadays, especially because of social media, you know, we tend to spend a lot of time, or even the TV, um, late at night, and because of that, our morning prayer is affected as well. So His Holiness mentioned that for many, that would be the Salatul Wusta prayer, and regarding the. Salatul Wusta prayer, it mentions in the Holy Quran that you should uh, put extra effort into it and look after that particular prayer. Um, so, you know, um, that that particular prayer should be looked after. But just generally, in regards to prayers, uh, as a Muslim, it is obligatory on a Muslim that he should offer his five daily prayers. And uh, even the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he's given the example of uh, taking a bath in a stream five times a day that uh, the effects of it is that just as uh, taking a bath in the stream five times a day there won't be any dirt left on the body this is the similar effect that prayer has on on our spiritual state so we should guard each prayer but uh, coming to the Salatul Wusta prayer the prayer which is the weakest uh, believers are told that they should take extra extra they should look after it put extra attention towards that mm. and Salatul Wusta prayer is different for different people 
different circumstances. Absolutely. It oh. depends on the particular circumstance of the person. Okay. All right. Anything you want to add, uh, Imam Farid? Yeah. Firstly, the thing is, personal I guess it varies from person to person. But the, you, the other point I was thinking about is that uh, the timetable given to us by the Almighty God for, you can say, the namaz and the prayers is such that you need to wake up early in the morning and the, well, it's expected from you to not to sleep during the, you can say, the day too much and you need to be up till the Isha, you can mm -hmm. say, around when the night time starts. So from early in the morning till the night time, you are expected to wake up mm. and work mm. and pray. So if you're sleeping, let's mm. say after five o'clock, then you won't be able to do your Asr and your Maghrib. So mm. it's designed in a way to keep you awake in the day and sleep in the n during the night. There's no prayer during the night. Yeah. So yeah. it's also... Okay, no, thanks very much. Point. Right, I think um, now we're fast approaching the uh, conclusion of this uh, particular broadcast. And uh, it means that uh, we need to acknowledge the uh, work of those who have been involved in the production of this particular uh, program. Uh, producer Saqib Munir Ahmed is worthy of gratitude as uh, is uh, his researchers, Neha Latif, Salia Bakhtiar and Hannah Ahmed. Those listening to this broadcast would acknowledge that we were able to cover uh, a number of different stories, some circulating in the wider media. Uh, but then we looked at two items in much more detail. Uh, the first one was regarding uh, social media and uh, the responsibility that uh, social media giants need to ex exercise. Uh, so the title of that topic was Psychology Experts Urge Social Media Giants to Increase Transparency around algorithms to protect users' mental health. So the fact that uh, mental health is being affected uh, by the uh, use of social media, social media has to take some responsibility. So that was the uh, first topic that uh, we dealt with. And uh, the second topic that we were covering uh, just a few minutes ago was regarding uh, dementia and how nightmares in middle age according to one study, is linked to the risk of uh, dementia. Um, our thanks uh, should also go to the contributors that uh, uh, came on to record their thoughts on uh, the first of our main stories, Dr. Lloyd Sederer. Dr. Lloyd Sederer is an adjunct professor of the University of Columbia, and uh, we were also... Uh, able to share the thoughts of Professor Anna Serrano Terraria, who comes from Spain and is Associate Professor at the University of Castilla La Mancha there. So uh, thanks to them for coming on. Uh, and uh, lastly, but uh, not least, uh, our uh, engineer in the control room, Mohammed Shafiq, made sure that everything ran smoothly as far as uh, the technical side of things were concerned. And should not forget our listeners for joining in uh, and listening to this broadcast. Do join us again Monday to Friday at the breakfast show from 7 to 9. And uh, it's salam alaikum from all of us from this particular show. And here's the news coming in a few seconds.